Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Tuesday session. We've been waiting for days uh, for the next segment of Surah Al-Azab. Um, it's been so incredible. And um, the jury's out whether we'll finish today, but inshallah, um, we're, we're looking forward to another super, super session. Um, I just wanted to share something that someone shared with me earlier today. It was an Instagram post that was um, shared by Yakin Institute. And it's a, a, powerful, um, a powerful bit of information from their research, um, which is interesting because I think if you ask sort of the average Muslim, you know, based on like um, appearances and marketing and, um, you know, just overall where things are, people would probably say Yakin Institute is one of our best, you know, in terms of what the Muslim community has to offer in terms of you know, professionalism, you know, they have really nice infographics, they're colorful, you know, they have a lot of Muslims on their, um, on their, you know, board or, you know, as part of their organization. Um, and so this was fascinating. Um, it's, it, they did a whole infographic, it's called Raising Doubt. And the statistic is that um, one in four is the number of Americans who are raised as Muslims who report no longer identifying with Islam in adulthood predominantly moving towards atheism or no religion. Um, one in four, which is, you know, a pretty huge number. I, I would actually, I would have thought that it would have been more than that. And, you know, you never know how, how research statistics are, but I was fascinated to see like what the reaction would be. Um, so of course I read comments and I like kind of dug a little deeper to see, okay, what is this based on? And it's based actually on a, a research paper um, by Dr. Osman Umarji called, Can Childhood Experiences Predict Religiosity and doubt in adults. It's an empirical analysis of Muslims, and apparently they did a lot of surveys and, and so forth. Um, but what was interesting is, you know, a lot of the comments um, and like, you know, I think people were surprised. Um, they wanted to know what the sources were, but there was one comment that stuck out to me, um, which I thought I would share, which is there are entire movements of ex-evangelicals and ex-Mormons most of us were raised to be very devout. For a lot of us, our doubts arose because the things that we were being taught conflicted with our values as human beings. Some of us continued in our faith, but in a newer, truer way. Others left our faith entirely. This definitely isn't an issue that is unique to Islam, which is, you know, completely true. Um, and I thought I would share, you know, like they, so this whole infographic goes on to explain, you know, okay, what is doubt? They can be hard doubts, soft doubts, you know, religious doubt. Um, Nothing that is actually anyone, you know, surprise to anyone. I mean, we live in an Islamophobic age. All kinds of things create doubt, and I think that if anything, it's a more serious doubt than ever before because we're getting thrown um, a lot of information that is very specific about our faith, about our prophet, you know, peace be upon him, about Islam, and a lot of you know contradictions and so forth. So I was sort of also interested to see, okay, well, what does Yakin Institute say about, um, you know, what are and they say what are the practical lessons that we can learn from this? Like, what are some of the solutions to this? Um, and so the solutions are that for parents, and again, remember that the research question is, can childhood experiences predict religiosity and doubt in adults? Which, I mean, I actually would argue is not really, it's an interesting question, but I don't think that that's a relevant question because whether or not you had good or bad childhood experiences, it doesn't change the, the reality that we live in today and how Islamophobia has changed in our time, you know, in our recent times, um, as opposed to, you know, what you might have been raised with 20, 30, you know, or fewer years ago. 
Um, so, but what do they say as practical lessons that they could, that we can learn from all of this? For parents, you can set up your children for long-term religious contentment by modeling consistent religious values, providing a high-quality religious education, avoiding harsh and overly strict attitudes and punishments, emphasizing the importance of faith in a warm and compassionate way, channeling their children into positive religious experiences, and encouraging strong friendships with other Muslim children. So it's you know a basic, I don't think there's anything that is surprising here. And then for adults who seek to decrease their own sense of doubt may find it helpful to one, develop strong friendships with other Muslims, two, avoid actively anti-Islamic content online and elsewhere, three, dedicate themselves to daily prayer, four, prioritize internal reasons to have faith and avoid external pressures, five, find teachers who can adequately address lingering questions, and six, participate in positive religious experiences. Again, nothing really surprising here, but the thing that really jumps out to me is sort of the obvious point, is that religion has to make sense. It has to address the issues that we face. We have to know what our Quran is, it means and says and how it's relevant to what the, the challenges that we face in our time. And so it's, it's just sort of highlighted again to me the specialness of what we do here because I feel like all of this stuff, you know, they probably spent a lot of time and effort to come to these very, very basic common sense conclusions and you know it's fine it's important to have evidence to back these kinds of things up but what actually moves the meter and changes the reality and what actually addresses you know when Muslims decide they they don't see anything interesting in Islam for them and they turn to either atheism or they move away from religion you know what we're talking about is what is it that actually will convince you that Islam has something to offer, that the Quran has actually something to say that is intelligent and relevant and, you know, and effective for your world. I mean, how, you know, so this is what is missing, I believe, um, that, and it's almost like it's even missing in the discussion. Like, all of this is premised on the idea that we understand, like, the Quran in a particular way, that there's no nuance, there's no place for sophistication, there's no way to sort of you know, really, that the, the, the Quran is all the same whether you get it from one source or another. And what we've learned here is obviously that that's not true. And, you know, um, so these kinds of things, you know, this is the best that, that our, you know, community has to offer right now. And to me, it feels like a bit of a kindergarten education because we need to dig a lot deeper and understand at a much deeper level what our book actually has to say. And it has to be something that is compelling, you know, in our day and age, for smart people, intelligent, thoughtful people, people who you know uh, think of themselves as sophisticated, and th those are not the terms that I would necessarily use to you know address like how we as a as a community are approaching either our book or the problems that we face. And we talk about all this stuff here, but so you know to to address like okay, what so what is the solution? And I hope that people will just take you know an opportunity to share with others that you know look at the the project Illumina. i know it's hard to watch six hours or three hours or ten hours however many hours we've spent on any particular surah but hopefully as a muslim there's at least one surah that has piqued your interest whether it's surah nur surah baqarah you know whatever people love you know um yasin whatever just pick any surah and just try to engage a little bit with, you know, one of these halakas and then see what the difference is. Because part of our challenge is convincing people.
that the Quran actually has something different to offer than what they hear at the mosque and what they, you know, what common knowledge might be. Because um, I think what we hear, what we cover here is absolutely stunning. It's unprecedented. It's obviously never been, you know, like this approach of even a thematic unity to a surah is something completely original and new to our tradition. And this is the game changer. So, you know, we're always, uh, I mean, I, for me, I'm always thinking about, okay, how do I convey to people that what we're doing is not what everybody else is doing, that this is not just a run-of-the-mill tafsir that you can get no matter where you t tune in or wherever you go. It's not all the same. Um, so, you know, hopefully if, you, if people are on social media, they're following our Instagram posts, we're trying to, you know, drop really powerful quotes, um, excerpts from the khutbah and from the halakha, you know, all of these things hopefully are planting seeds for people for when they're actually ready to search. But, you know, this, these kinds of research models just sort of emphasize to me how far away we are from even like addressing, you know, okay, what is really going to prevent people from leaving this faith? It's that this religion has to offer something better, bigger, better, more reasonable, more rational, more interesting, more compelling, and, you know, relevant to what's going on. So for that, anyway, um, I am so excited to continue on our journey with Surah Al-Azab. I know last time we covered a lot of historical stuff, but you know we covered a lot of things about, for example, even the Prophet's wives that no one has ever heard before. We've never delved into anywhere else. So it's I know what we do here is really special, and I'm so excited um, to continue, and I hope people will invite their friends to join us on this journey because it's it's such an incredible journey. And thank you so much, Sheikh, again, for, for sharing all of your, your lifetime journey with all of us. So thank you for being with us and look forward to another amazing session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad al-Nabiyu al-Ameen khatamu al-Rusli wal-Anbiya'i ajma'in al-Musa al-Rahmatan lil-Alameen wa ala alihi al-Athari al-Tayyibin وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أوكي سو سورة الأحزاب So far, we started out with the rather remarkably humbling Quranic command to the Prophet that that simple straightforward command that human beings, when a human being, an average Muslim today, if, if, you, if you tell them something like that, they, they take exception to it. But Surah Al-Ahzab in itself is in, in, in a, a, a Surah that if, um, in many aspects, is while centering the Prophet 
placing the Prophet in the center of everything, it also at the same time is very humbling towards the Prophet as we will see. Anyway, so Surah Al-Ahzab, as we've talked about, begins with this, then moves on to what I refer to as the construction of reality, the way we engage, the way we engage with commitments, and the way we engage with um, what becomes a frame of reference, what becomes determinative points demanding deference in our lives. In other words, what we define in our lives as mattering, as what matters and what doesn't matter. And then it moved from there to a an example, of course, a lived example of what the uh, uh, which is the name of the surah itself, the 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 battle of the Confederates or the Ahzab, um, the anti-Muslim alliance, which, as we all talked about, is is centered around the, the whole, what's often called the Battle of the Trench, or Ghazwat al-Khandaq. And having addressed how Muslims, whether Muslims of strong faith or Muslims of compromised faith, responded to this extreme test of um, of their commitments and of their will. Then it moved on to a matter of social dynamics, but not necessarily yet matter of public social dynamics, but the social dynamics relevant to the Prophet himself and the role of the Prophet and the family of the Prophet. Um, and as we, we've talked about in the context of the Battle of the Trench, there is also the expulsion of the tribe of Banu Quraiza from Medina and in, in, in the course of this discussion, I mentioned um, that there are many historical ambiguities. I mean, and we've gone through a number of them, um, whether, you know, narratives like narratives about the role of someone like Abu Lubaba and whether it's accurate or historically accurate or not historically accurate or um, the... Um, Sa'd ibn Mu'az, the, the role of someone like Sa'd ibn Mu'az, and so on and so forth. Um, I expressed very strong doubts about the narrative of the massacre uh, that Sa'd, the whole narrative of Sa'd ibn Mu'az uh, 
according to many of these stories, ruling per Jewish law, that the men of Banu Quraiza be um, executed and and that uh, the women and children be enslaved. And um, there are, it's this is a much larger topic. But you know, among other things, it's it's just very noteworthy that. Um, the the narratives these narratives end up the the tenor the tone the the substance of these narratives um, have the direct the clear effect of actually making Banu Qurayza, who are supposed to be a very treacherous tribe uh, a tribe that stabbed Muslims in the back actually end up being looking heroic heroic and. Muslims, I mean, it's fair to say they end up not looking very good. The 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 narratives don't go into a lot of details about the executions, other than to emphasize the bravery of Benu Khurayza and and so on. But there are a couple of things. One thing I forgot to mention: um, Lina Salame, who's a very good academic. Um, a Palestinian uh, Israeli professor uh, wrote in her book um, begin, um, Beginnings of it's called New Beginnings the beginnings, of the, the, the beginnings of Islamic Law she actually talks discusses the the, the historiography of the um, the incident with Banu Qurayza and and then um Steve Conley sent me um, a message, uh, an article by Walid Arafat called New Light on the Story of Banu Qurayza and the Jews of Medina. Uh, this is a 1976 article. I actually haven't read this article, um, probably because it's Yeah, it's 1976. Anyway, uh, then um, there is an Israeli academic, Mir Kester, who responded to Walid Arafat's article, uh, apparently in 1986, with an article article called The Massacre of Banu Qurayza, a Re-Examination of a Tradition. It was published in the Jerusalem Studies in Arabic and Islam. Um, and then an article that I have seen by Munir Muhammad, and Munir Muhammad is a good scholar. It was published in 2016, titled Some Reflections on the Story of Banu Qurayza, a Re-Evaluation of Ibn Ishaq's Account. And it was published in the Islamabad, Islamabad Law Review in 2016. And um, Munir Ahmed rebuts uh, Mir Kester's rebuts the the rebuttal of Mir Kester's or Mir Kester's rebuttal of Walid Arafat. So you have the originally Walid Arafat and then Mir Kester and then finally um, Muhammad Munir in 2016. Can you pass this to Um And of course, the the the, the Lina Salama um, discussion in her book, 
the beginnings of Islamic law. And I don't think we've been able to find, although I'm, I know I have a copy of it in my archives somewhere, of um, the thesis that was written by uh, Galel Keshk's son at, um, at John Hopkins about uh, this historical, the historiography of this incident and so on. I mean, if, if, um, I think it is fair to say that the, one cannot take as a historical fact that 600 or 700 um, men were put to death um, after the Battle of the Trench from the tribe of Banu Qurayza. Uh, there was, at the same time, there is evidence that the certain of the leaders of Banu Qurayza were executed, but that would be six or seven executions. Now, it wouldn't be historically surprising considering what conduct was involved and considering the laws of war and the Near East, Near Eastern legal systems at the time, leave alone legal systems all around the world, it would not have been a surprise if, in fact, the fate of Banu Qurayza would have been uh, as the narratives of Saad ibn Ma'az claims but nevertheless, although it would not have been historically surprising, when you look carefully at who, where these, the, the narratives that Ibn Ishaq ultimately adopted, because all of this comes from Sirat Ibn Ishaq, uh, and Ibn Ishaq's Sirah, when you look at where he took the original narratives about the fate of Banu Qurayza, it makes you extremely suspicious. And then we have figures from Banu Qurayza, male figures from the nobility of Banu Qurayza, who pop up in narratives about uh, the Battle of Khaybar, or in the migration of Jewish narratives about the migration of Jewish tribes to Yemen, uh, to Sham, if, if the men were executed and the women and children enslaved, there would be no migration to Yemen or to Sham. Uh, but yet we have cumulative narratives about migration of, of members from the tribe, and the, the survival of the tribe of Banu Qurayza itself, which is, again, it just it, it, a lot of historical ambiguities. And then we came to, as we said, that the fate or the victory sometimes could be quite dangerous. Because in the same way that 
extreme circumstance test people's mettle, victory could infect people with a considerable amount of hubris and a considerable amount of overconfidence and a, a sense of entitlement about... And here, interestingly, we don't have the same social tensions that we saw in Surah An-Nur or even in Surah Al-Anfal um, about the division of the spoils of war. It's quite likely that this is a situation in which those who stuck by, who, who remained vigilant and who stuck by principle and fought till the end um, with such a distinct group of people and the the retreat of the confederacy and the 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 the, the um, that confederate anti-Muslim confederacy, the way it crumbled and fell apart, was so miraculous, so unpredictable, and coming in the aftermath of Surah An-Nur. We just don't have the type of narratives where people would go to the Prophet and say, you know, why aren't we getting bigger spoils of war or a bigger share of the spoils of war? There was, I am sure, if you try to put yourself, to, to reimagine the historical situation, you can imagine that all those who retreated and went back, quote-unquote, to protect their homes, um, are in a very awkward position and in a very strange position after the, 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 the siege failed. Um, and they are, you know, they, they would be worried about rehabilitating their reputation and rehabilitating their position at, after such a major victory. However, as we've talked about, it is interesting that the, the, it is within the household of the Prophet where there is a sense of, okay, you know, isn't it time that our lives become easier? And again, when you look at what was actually being demanded, I mean, by it's not that much. If it, it, I mean, um, it's not that much if you are considering what royal, you know, royal homes or emperors or 
what um, but decisively for the Prophet um, the very idea that within his household there would be individuals that are demanding a greater share of dunya is unequivocally unacceptable. And as we've talked about, there's an ultimatum, and the ultimatum doesn't come from the Prophet it comes from God. And, but the delivery of the ultimatum, and I didn't really get into this uh, last halakha, The delivery of the ultimatum and this is something un- unfortunately it's not it's not sufficiently emphasized or focused on is that the Prophet doesn't come and deliver the ultimatum in a harsh um, in a harsh way, you you, you you know you can imagine it is possible to come and say, okay, listen, you know here's what God is saying, and you, you you're either gonna stay with me on you know these conditions, or you know, here's the door. It, the way he delivers the ultimatum is rather noteworthy. Uh, many of the narratives stay, say that he begins with Aisha and he tells Aisha there's something I want to talk to you about and I want to talk to you about it and I don't want you to give me an answer right away I want you to consult with your parents think about it and then give me an answer and he communicates not just the verses but basically he says If you choose to separate, um, I will ask God to bless, you know, to give you everything in this world that you desire. Um, but if you choose to remain with me, then you have to understand that this path will not get easier. And Aisha chooses... She, she refuses to consult with his, her, her parents and says, you know, I know the answer right away, but he meets with each of his wives and gives them the sa- has the same conversation. The reason I, I emphasize this is that it, 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 these little indications, these little adilla of the personality of the Prophet are, in my view, of greater significance in identifying for us the sunnah of the Prophet, the path of the Prophet, the example of the Prophet, than the type of events where we have great difficulty 
establishing the historical facts because they were historically burdened events. And what I mean by historically burdened is that they were events in which there were vested political and social and other interests in tweaking the narrative one way or the other. The narratives that seem to have been reported through history uncontested. So there are narratives that are simply transmitted without anyone noticing that they deserve to be contested. These narratives, and that give us a sense of the, the Prophet as a human, not as a public figure, but as an individual. So narratives, for instance, about his dhikr, narratives about the way he would joke with someone, narratives about casual conversations he's had with this person or that person, are extremely significant in understanding these micro what I what these micro details are are extremely significant in unpacking the moral example of the prophet because narratives about whether he married x person or whether he freed x person or you will often find these narratives hotly contested with a great deal of inconsistency and you will identify strong vested interests in the narrative in the various competing narratives And we saw, and although I didn't emphasize it from this perspective, but we saw an example of this in that although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first the articulation of a special status for the wives of the Prophet and while it is an historically inaccurate to say and although you find it in a lot of texts of by written by modern Muslims that the wives of the Prophet were excluded they were they were told to prefer to they were told to presumptively to it's like saying you know be mindful of your status in society and your place in society and the role that you need to play in society and be mindful that you are not like any other person but 
we continue, if the wives of the Prophet needed to exit their homes for one reason or another, if they needed to get something done, they did it. So it is, it is not true that somehow the, 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 the imposition of the hijab on the wives of the Prophet became a die-hard exclusion, as some modern Muslims imagine it to be. And we saw that this remarkable statement إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَهِّرُكُمْ تَطْهِيرًا Allah's intention is for Alil Bayt. Now, literally, Alil Bayt is the haram, the sanctity, or the sanctuary of the Prophet. Any with anyone within that that circle, that sanctuary, is a part of Alil Bayt. And Allah alerts everyone associated with this Alil Bayt that the very framing of purify you and keep away all risks is all forms of, of, of defilement, all forms of contaminants, all forms of um, evil or unbecoming, anything unbecoming is part of, of what it is. But it is has a, 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 something that is the connotation of something that is morally compromising. By the language here, the moral example that the family of the Prophet has a role to play in society while they are definitely not a part of the prophecy, but they have a special status in society. They have a, a role of moral leadership, um, moral mentoring, as we will we'll see in a bit. Okay. I think that, and then this is where we, and then 35, إن المسلمين والمسلمات والمؤمنين والمؤمنات وقانتين وقانتات Let's see how interesting. So, okay. So, Muhammad Asas uh, translates as, Verily for all men and women who have surrendered themselves unto God, and all believing men and believing women, and all truly devout men and truly devout women, and all men and women who are true to their word, 
and all men and women who are patient in adversity, and all men and women who humble themselves before God, and all men and women who give charity, and all self-denying men and women, and self-denying men and self-denying women, and all men and women who are mindful of their chastity, and all men and women who remember God unceasingly, for all of them, God has readied forgiveness of sins and a mighty reward. So what is special about this particular ayah is the specification of men and women. The rule in Arabic is that using the masculine form, unless the context specifies other words, the masculine form is used for both masculine and feminine. So a lot of even, uh, a lot of Arabic poetry is written in the masculine form. Um, this is not because it, it is written from a man to a man. It is because the masculine form can be used to refer to the feminine. Uh, even like a lot of Um Kalsum's uh, songs in, in classical Arabic, uh, although she's a woman, she's, she, the, the, oh, sorry, the, the poet who wrote, the, the poet, the poet who wrote the poetry that Um Kalsum is singing, the poet was a man and he writes the poem in the masculine form. Of course, these songs were not written for Um Kalsum. Um, they were written long before Um Kalsum was even born. But when she sings them, they, they sound like they were made for her because she's a woman. But when you remember that this poetry was actually written by a man in the masculine form, and is that's a, 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 a normal practice that unless the context specifies otherwise, the masculine form refers both to masculine and feminine. So what is unusual here is that the Quran specifies al-Muslimina wal-Muslimat, Muslim men and Muslim women, al-Mu'minina wal-Mu'minat, believing men and believing women, wal qanitina wa qanitat, truly God, truly men and women who are truly mindful of God, as-sadiqina wa sadiqat, again truthful men and truthful women. Now, we have a range of interesting narratives um, at the back, in the background of this area. And let me see where, you know, you might know. Yeah. Now, 
some versions of these narratives say that it was wives of the Prophet who, like Um Salama, in 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 one in a group of narratives, it says that it's Um Salama. That Um Salama, other narratives say no, it was other wives. Some narratives say it was two or three wives. Basically, they all go and and say to the Prophet um, why is it that Allah mentions men in the Quran and doesn't mention us women? Uh, Other group of narratives say that no, it wasn't wives of the Prophet or it wasn't just the wives of the Prophet, but it was women in the community like Um Ammar al Ansariya. And and the, the, here the language differs. So Umar al-Ansari, for instance, is reportedly says, مَا أَرَى كُلَّ شَيْءٍ إِلَّا لِلْرِجَالِ وَمَا أَرَى النِّسَاءِ يُسْكَرْنَ بِشَيْءٍ Her language is a little bit less polite, I think. Um, not impolite, but just less. So she says, saying, it's like saying, man, uh, you know, why is it that I notice the Quran is only interested in men and not interested in women? Um, and as I've said before, when you have as many reports, all of them communicating the same idea, they they probably allude to now because of the different versions so there was some momentum whether that momentum started with wives of the prophet and then supported by women from the community or started by women in the community and then um echoed by some wives of the Prophet. But this voice of we want to make sure that the Quran is acknowledging us women. Now you pause for a second and you know right away that there is a lot in the historical context that is missing and possibly irretrievable. Why? Because we know that the Quran, for instance, in Surah Al-Mujadala, already responded to women. So it is not true that the Quran hasn't mentioned us women. We know that the Quran did. And in fact, when Allah is saying to a woman, 
who's arguing with her husband and then, you know, talking to, uh, uh, complaining to the Prophet. And Allah says, you know, Allah listens to, has heard what you're saying. That is a direct channel from God to a woman's voice. But here you suspect that there is something additional going on. We know that there is a lot of the tradition that show us that there was a tension, which we've already mentioned, about the norm, women's norms of the women of Medina versus the more conservative norms of the women of Mecca. And as we, as I mentioned before, there is a reason for that. Women of Medina were, a lot of their social norms were the norms of working women. Women who had to actually leave the house and do things to survive. Women of Mecca, still had the the classic Qureshi issue of the norms of aristocratic women versus the norm of low-class working women. And the norms of aristocratic women is to do less and appear less and engage less. And as we know from reports that remarkably survived, and it, it is rather remarkable that they survived, that whether, you know, the Omar ibn al-Khattab is made as the prototype of the objecting male, but that, you know, individuals like Omar ibn al-Khattab are often cast as protesting the, um, the role that women, so for instance, that, you know, I have all these narratives where Omar ibn al-Khattab is objecting to um, uh, to the fact that women are are um, uh, walking in um, walking in the streets when it's dark, or walking in the streets as they're going to fajr before the, the sun is up, or that um, Omar ibn Khattab reportedly says, "I have for long wished that Allah would impose the hijab." And, you know, finally Allah answered um, my prayers. And for instance, you have, uh, you know, some, some reports, whether they're historically authentic, I have very serious questions about that. But that, you know, the, um, Umar ibn Khattab tries to, notices that the wives of the Prophet are, are, walking the streets at dark and, and he, he tries to scare Sauda uh, to get a point across that, you know, the streets are not safe. Um, and it's even, the, the narrative is a little bit comical because he, like, tries to, to scare her by jumping in front of her in the, in the street. I, I, you know, I have very serious doubts that, that when you have someone constantly picked as put in this sort of prototypical role as... Um, 
in a sort of a theatrical fashion as like the, the person who's always carrying the torch of the single cause of let's put women in their place. And at the same time, you could accept it if it didn't jive with other reports in which Omar is presented in a very different light. Anyway, there is clearly a tension and the clearly the tension is that the Prophet supports the the active role of, of women in society. So even in the battle of the trench, while so many men withdrew, there are women who, like in the battle of Uhud, women who stood their place, refused to withdraw, and became quite famous and quite well known for the prominent role they played. Okay. So, and at the same time, We know from Surah Al-Nur and from Surah Al-Ahzab, as we will see in a second, that with you have a society that on the one on the one hand it's an open society because it is open to converts it's open to people coming from the desert saying we're muslim and we want to be with you but on the other hand any society that has to worry about hypocrites uh, a, a a class of people that you can't trust within a society that has to worry about consistent betrayals by outsiders who signed the covenant with you and then broke their covenant and then joined your enemies and at the same time constantly have to worry about an external threat while you have openness that openness brings a lot of danger and a lot of risk. And that is reflected in all these reports, the Ayyar the al-Shuttar reports. The Ayyar al-Shuttar reports are reports that as women in Medina are playing these active roles, going leaving their homes five times a day to go to the masjid, going attending any meetings or meetings in which the Prophet is speaking. Playing a role in the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud and in the Battle of Al-Ahzab, you also have elements that whether unsavory local native elements 
or migrant elements that came to Medina from the outside. In other words, often described simply as Bedouins. Um, that came to Medina. Now, whether they came to Medina thinking, well, maybe, you know, we can get something of the spoils of war. Um, I, nominally saying they're Muslim, but what we see from Surah Al-Nur and Surah Al-Ahzab and numerous reports is that there is also a harassment of women in open spaces in Medina that and a lot of the prototypical narratives attributed to Omar their response to this harassment is well women should play a less public role but the Prophet refuses to say anything that, in fact, would limit the role of women publicly. And importantly, when the what is commonly known as Ayat al-Hijab, the verse on hijab, comes, it doesn't come to address all Muslim women it's limited to the wives of the Prophet. And it's prefaced, the preamble of it, to it says, You are not like other women. So although we have a lot of these narratives, and Fatma Miranisi, for instance, makes a very big deal of, of, of these narratives, where she says which I, I don't accept, by the way, her, her interpretation of the history, that, you know, the, the, that the prophet was sort of had a progressive outlook and, and wanted uh, women to have an active role, and then the ayat al-hijab is revealed and conservative elements of society win, and now women are secluded after the ayat al-hijab. The, the problem was this narrative. And she relies on a lot of these traditions that respond to Ayat al-Hijab, celebrate the revelation of Ayat al-Hijab as if Ayat al-Hijab commanded the seclusion of all women. But note, this is a really important point that it does not say all women it says only the wives of the prophet and even then as I said it is not a complete seclusion because the wives of the prophet continued to and as we saw in the Sauda report for instance that we talked about last time continue to 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 go out on you know whether they're going in Hajj, going to Umrah, going if if they had a reason to go, they did. They went. They continued to attend prayer, for instance, <laughs> as well. Um, so, Ayat al-Hijab is not about, and again, I'm emphasizing, is not about Muslim women in general. 
it is about only the wives of the Prophet. By the language of the ayah itself. Okay. However, what do we do of what do we make of the fact that we have these narratives in the tradition that although the terms of Ayat al-Hijab says وَقَرْنَ فِي بِيُوتِكُنْ وَلَا تَبَرَّجْنَ تَبَرُّجِ الْجَاهِلِيَ الْأُولَى Prefacing that يَا نِسَاءَ النَّبِيِّ لَسْتُنَّكَ أَحَدٍ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ You are not like other women and it, it addresses its commands to the wives of the Prophet. What do we make of the fact that there are extrapolations on these ayat in Surah Al-Ahzab that apply to the wives of the Prophet, extrapolations that effectively read these ayat as if they apply to all women. What you make of it is that clearly there were social tensions in that it is absolutely true that in all likelihood that whether, you know, as I said, Omar is always placed as the prototype of, of this, this, this orientation. But that there were, with events like the siege, with all the turbulence that taking place, there were males that wanted women to play a, male, a, a more secluded role or to wanted to strictly limit the role that women played. Allah responds to this by limiting the role that the wives of the Prophet play. This must have led must have had a reaction. When I read these traditions that try to twist the arms of these verses and say they apply to all women, what that tells me is that that's, it is an indication of a social, historical social dynamic where there were pressures to indeed limit the role of women. In all likelihood, as a reaction to these pressures, women came to the Prophet and wanted assurances that they are fully validated. And whether it is in fact came from women in the community 
like Umm Amr al-Ansariya or from the wives of the Prophet, the, the, you can imagine, they know that the Quran acknowledge, has acknowledged women and they are aware that when you speak in the masculine, unless the context, but what does that mean when, they, when you have these traditions that tell you, oh, why is it that God only mentions men? What, what, what do these traditions indicate? They, they indicate that there is a social momentum saying we want to be validated. But why do you want to be validated? Well, you want to be validated in response to a momentum that wants to negate you or invalidate you. So part of this, I can I imagine that part of this is that now, so you have this, you know, a... After Ahzab, after seeing that a lot of the men ended up being a disappointment, an increasing active role for women, I can imagine that collectively you've heard a, a higher voice by women. And what the Quran comes and says, part of this voice is illegitimate. And that, the part that's illegitimate are the women that turn their, their increased social role, or if you will, into a demand for material things. And concretely, they go to the Prophet and say, we, we want more. But the part that is legitimated by the Quran is the moral validation of women. So, look, right after you have 33 telling wives of the Prophet to avoid the tabarraj of jahiliyyah and that Allah wants to purify Ali bayt and then underscoring in 35 and 34 that wives of the prophet focus on the hikmah and the revelation in other words focus on the ethical teachings that are being conveyed and repeated and um, emphasized in your households then right after that, 35, we get that moral validation, explicit moral validation of the role of women, but not the role of women, in, not, not that aspect where they are saying, we want material things, but in their the moral function they play in society. In other words, their role as moral examples in society. So, Qanitin, 
or let's use a, a, a feminine form. القانطات الصادقات الصابرات الخاشعات المتصدقات الصائمات الحافظات الذاكرات so it is like and if and I think if if people would have, it's like saying you are as as immoral value in society as a moral guide within society you have an equal role to play because when it comes to what matters to Allah, there is no compromise on that. Truth, that, that what Allah expects from men in terms of sacrifice and in terms of diligence and in terms of living by principle, and in terms of being soldiers of God, Allah expects from you women as well. So there, there, you have your, your, your obligations, your status, what you are, what is expected from you is in no way mitigated by your gender or watered down by your gender. Okay. And then we get to 36 and 37. Let me just, before I, oh, no, I did forget what, okay. Um, there is a, um, Um, there is in Tafsir al-Qurtubi a passage that I've always thought um, has caught my attention I just it's uh, really interesting So this is uh, it's a, a passage I would say of historical curiosity. Um, okay, so Qurtubi 
Because maybe uh, someone can help me find it. According to me, it's talking about how the 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 pro the wives of the Prophet are you know ordered to avoid to, to be especially keen about avoiding tabarruj. And of course we've already mentioned that tabarruj generally and tabarruj as as we said is to 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 make it a point to display one's physical attributes to draw attention to one year, to oneself and how ta the tabarruj is, is wrong and then Qurtubi says that in his travels he has never found he has never seen women more modest than the women of Palestine and especially Jerusalem. Um, so I, I want to find this passage because it's very, especially these days when Muslims have, have all like to pretend like Palestine never mattered um, and that Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore. You know, I, I, as I, everything in my being tells me that if Muslims, as long as Muslims continue saying Jerusalem doesn't matter, they will remain cursed by Allah. Allah will never bless anything they do. Um, okay. The key in, in Qurtubi's text, Rami, if you're looking for it, is the word Nablus, because he talks about his visit to Nablus. It's Ibn Arabi, so... Uh, He's quoting Ibn Arabi. But it is in Qurtubi? You see people who know like computer stuff, it's like they save so much time. This could take me hours just trying to find, it's just like probably just like two minutes, not even two minutes. Um, okay. Qala ibn al-Arabi, laqad dakhal tu naifan ala alf qarya. So he says, ibn al-Arabi, yeah, so he's reporting, so Ibn Arabi says, I've, I've entered maybe more than a thousand villages. So, but he, he says, I've never seen women who are more modest and pure than the women of Nablus, of course, in Palestine. Um, so he says that he doesn't see women in the streets except on Fridays because on Fridays all the women come out to um, to go pray. And 
فإذا قضيت الصلاة وانقلبنا إلى منازلهن لم تقع عيني على واحدة منهن إلى الجمعة الأخرى وقد رأيت بالمسجد الأقصى عفائف ما خرجنا من معتكفهن حتى استشهدنا فيه. So he's saying that the, in, in the, all the women he, they doesn't see them in the streets except on Fridays when they all come out to Friday prayer and then they disappear from a Friday to Friday. So basically all the women just come out to Friday prayer, which again, by the way, just note, when I mentioned to you earlier that I, it's only in the modern age where we made Friday not relevant for women. That's, that's a modern invention. It's not, a, it's not because it's clear historically that women would always go out to the mosque uh, on, on pray Fridays. And then he says that, and then he saw women in the Aqsa Mosque, they remained there, they, they, they secluded themselves in the Aqsa Mosque until they were martyred in it. Of course, he's, he's, he's referring to the, their martyrdom during the Crusades. Um, anyway, yeah, because then the Khalifat al-Amr Anyway, So now, remember that part of this journey, while Allah made very clear that it, 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 it's important to note, because we, we, that part of our discussion about the construction of reality is what in Surah Al-Ahzab is very clear and what is not clear. And while Allah makes very clear the ethical, the, the application of ethical roles to women, don't forget our discussion about the considerable ambiguity about who precisely the Prophet married, um, when whether they, they, they whether the last marriage was in the seventh, uh, uh, seventh Hijri year, whether they were, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to this. But anyway, now we come to another point of a historical event that deserve pause and reflection so first 36 وَمَنْ كَانَ لِمُؤْمِنٍ وَلَا مُؤْمِنَةٍ إِذَا قَضَى اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمْرًا أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُمُ الْخِيَرَةُ مِنْ أَمْرِهِمْ وَمَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدْ ضَلَّ ضَلَالًا مُبِينًا that if, if Allah and the Prophet decide something a, a true believer should not have a choice okay then 37, we get to the actual historical incident with Zaid. So let's see how Muhammad Asa translated it. And 
O Muhammad, though did stay unto the one to whom God has shown favor and to whom you have shown favor, hold on to your wife and remain conscious of God. And thus would you hide within yourself something that God was about to bring to light. For you did stand in awe of what people might think, whereas it was God alone of whom you shouldest have stood in awe. And then when Zaid had come to the end of his union with her, we gave her to you in marriage, so that in the future no blame should attach to the believers for marrying the spouses of their adopted children when the later have come to the end of their union with them. And thus God's will was done. Okay. So this is, of course, one of the famous um, events We've talked about Zayd ibn al-Haritha that initially he was the Prophet's adopted son and that then in Surah Al-Ahzab Allah comes and says you, you can't give them your name. So he is he's given his original name from his biological lineage Zayd ibn al-Haritha rather than Zayd ibn Muhammad. And the reference in 37, which is one of the big favorites of Islamophobes, by the way, and Orientalists, you read narratives that tell you the following. That, so... I've mentioned part of it in the past that the Prophet told Zayd to marry Zainab Zainab didn't want to marry Zayd and she didn't want to marry Zayd because he is a freed slave and she sees herself as of honorable lineage and descent and And as the story goes, then they are married. But this language that you, Prophet, you are telling Zaid, don't divorce her, and you're hiding inside of yourself what God would reveal. And you are hiding inside of yourself what God would reveal because you fear people and God, you should be more, you should be fearful of God, not people. And, and thus, when Zaid's marriage with her came to an end, we had you, Muhammad, marry her. And, you read a set of traditions that say that the Prophet went to visit Zaid and he wasn't home 
But Zainab opened the door, and when he saw her, he was struck by her beauty. And when he saw how beautiful she is, that, and then later on, Zaid came to complain about her and say that, you know, she doesn't treat me well, she's very rude to me. As the prophet was telling him, don't divorce her, that at the same time, he wanted to marry her. And that that's what God was referring to, that you wanted, that secretly, you wanted to marry her, but you were telling him, don't divorce her. Uh, and fear God, you know, don't divorce your wife. And what compounds or what adds to this narrative is that you have a report attributed to Aisha where she says no Quranic verse was harder on the Prophet than this Quranic verse that you are hiding, you're concealing what Allah intends to reveal. And you and you're hiding it because you're worried about what people would think, but you should be worried about God. Some other traditions say that if the Prophet would have concealed any part of the Quran, he surely would have concealed this verse. In other words, that since the Prophet is not the author of the Quran, so he, you know, it, it's like uh, it's like saying, you know, there's proof that the that the Prophet is not the author of the Quran, and that is that if he, if in fact he, he was the author, he would surely have would have hidden this part of the Quran because it's embarrassing. But then you pause and there has already been a number of people who have investigated these traditions. And first, let's go back to the original. We have a number of narratives. We know that Zainab is the prophet's cousin. They grew up together. There are, as I said, a narrative that says she was always in love with him, although it's it's a, an isolated narrative, Allah Alam. And that he goes to her and he says, you should marry Zaid, and she doesn't want to marry Zaid, and she doesn't want to marry Zaid because of the difference in social in social status. But that eventually, she says, okay, fine, I delegate you, it's up to you, you decide. And then she marries him, and many traditions about her not treating Zaid well at least date complains that she's not treating him well, that she doesn't like the way she talks to him, she doesn't like her attitude, etc., etc. Of course, the problem was the narrative about 
the prophet seeing her and wanting her and then telling Zayd don't divorce her but he's really concealing the desire to be married to her is that it is Ill, not logical to say that the prophet saw her for the first time when she opened the door because he grew up with her he's seen her a million times and indeed when you delve into this tradition that is a favorite of islamophobes and orientalists it is among the israelite traditions meaning it was circulated by Jewish converts to Islam and there's and when you find and there are key people that you we always suspect that they converted to Islam in order to circulate traditions that impeach the character of the Prophet now Zaid marries Zainab eight years before the Hijrah. But divorces Zainab around five years after the Hijrah, around the incidents of the Battle of the Ahzab. Whether it overlaps or shortly after he divorces Zainab, he marries Um Ayman. Some sources say that he married Um Ayman before he divorced Zainab. Other sources say it was right after he divorced Zainab. But Um Ayman was a freed slave like Zaid himself so in other words the same status as him and Um Ayman in fact she gives birth to a boy and and he's very happy with Um Ayman and when Zaid goes to complain to the Prophet that he wants to divorce Zainab the Prophet knows that this marriage has been full of problems Zaid has complained repeatedly about Zainab and we have numerous traditions that in fact the Prophet before the divorce incident has gone to Zainab and tried to talk to her about improving her treatment of Zaid. After Zaid divorces Zainab, what do you think her status in society is? Zaid was known as the Prophet's adopted son and although Surat al-Ahzab comes and says 
well, you can't give him your name, but he's still in a very special status. And now this is the divorcee of the prophet's ex-adopted son. And Zaid didn't just divorce her, but he divorced her after a, a whole legacy of complaints about her. Not surprisingly, you read that Zainab became seriously depressed and was weeping. And she's not weeping about the loss of Zaid, but she's weeping about her fate. Now, let me share with you this story that you, you don't find in Orientalist sources or in um, Islamophobic sources. So, Zaid goes to her eventually and tells her, when she sees him, she says, what brought, and basically she doesn't want to talk to him. And he said, I've come to you with news. And in news that will end your sorrow and basically mend your heart. And what news, he says, the prophet is proposing to you. And she responds by saying, I will not agree until I consult my God. And then she goes and prays on it before she gives him a response. Now, what the personality of Zainab that emerges from this, she's no, she's not a, a lightweight. She, you know, she's not a person that just receives orders. Even when she gets a proposal from the prophet, her response is, I need to do istikhara. Which is, when you think about the people that we, it's, it's mind-blowing, right? The other thing is that it is clear that it is well understood that this woman, after Zaid divorced her, had become like a pariah in society. And that when the Prophet is telling her, telling Zaid, don't divorce her, although he knows that this is not a marriage that's working. He is not thinking of the, he's not thinking of what's good for the two, but he knows that this divorce will be of disastrous consequences to his cousin. Zaid will have no problem remarrying as he did because he married Um Ayman and there's even reports that he married a woman called Um Kalsum who was the first woman to migrate um, from Mecca to, first Meccan woman to migrate from Mecca to Medina. But some commentators said that what the prophet was concealing 
and they relied on a, on a tradition that said that Allah told the prophet that this is going to become your wife and that when the prophet told Zayd don't divorce her he was telling him this knowing that this is a doomed marriage I, I have serious doubts about this tradition um, for one thing I, I find it very doubtful that Allah would tell the prophet that this is going to be your wife and the prophet would still tell Zayd no keep her as do you see what I'm saying? I mean, if if you if if you get a command from Allah that this marriage should end, it's unthinkable to me that the the prophet would would even hesitate. But considering that this is his cousin, considering that we we know what that divorce meant. Although she didn't exactly, it was clear that she didn't like being married to Zaid, whatever the, the reasons are. But, uh, but the only solution to rehabilitate, to, to compensate this woman for the divorce from the, uh, the de facto son of the Prophet was for the prophet or someone of his status to marry her. And if it is true that she was always in love with the prophet, Allah alam if it's true, and Allah alam if he knew that, even if it was true. But what is clear is that this narrative about the prophet seeing her and then falling and saying, oh, she's so beautiful. and It's just complete nonsense. Okay. Now, so what is it when you go back to this verse? وَمَنْ كَانَ لِمُؤْمِنٍ وَلَا مُؤْمِنَةٍ إِذَا قَضَى اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمْرًا أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُمُ الْخِيَرْتُ مِنْ أَمْرِهِمْ When that, this is verse 36, no believer should have a choice if Allah and the Prophet decide something. When you look in the commentaries, most of them tell you what this is talking about is that when it's talking about that when the Prophet told Zainab to marry Zaid, that she should have married him immediately without argument. But we know that this is not consistent with women having freedom of choice. So many commentators come and say, well, this is an exception to the rule of women having freedom of choice because it is, it's like an exception by superior command, by you know, the, 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 the command of the, uh, of the high executive, this type of thing. I think the answer we don't need to, 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 to go this far. I think the answer is rather obvious. What the Quran, the, the tone of 36 is faulting someone. It's, saying, it's like pointing out someone's error. The error here is the moral error 
in not, it's not the, it's not saying that Zainab should have married Zaid right away, which she did ultimately, but it's, but that when the Allah and the Prophet tell people that social status should not be an impediment to marriage, that's what they should have obeyed immediately. It's not, it doesn't matter whether Zainab, you should marry Zaid or not, but you should have immediately accepted the moral lesson that the fact that this is a freed slave should not make you have an attitude. Zainab understood from this verse that it was sort of blaming her. But I think people are misreading Zainab's sense of guilt. She's not guilty because she didn't marry Zaid right away. I mean, she, this was, you know, years ago. And ultimately she told the prophet, you know, you decide. No, it's her attitude. It's her attitude at the marriage and attitude after the marriage. She remained, she constantly would tell Zaid, you're a freed slave and I am from an honorable family. That's what is, and and this is, was it considering that this is what Zaid was complaining about here? Was it wrong uh, for the prophet, as a few commentators said, to then tell him, don't divorce her knowing that she um, degraded him. Because it, 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 most modern commentators won't even touch this. But I think it is actually quite reasonable that if Allah is chiding the Prophet for anything, is that, listen, you know, this woman has been, has a superior attitude to this man. She takes this man for granted. She doesn't treat him well. Why are you telling him, don't divorce her? Because you are embarrassed about the marriage that you arranged having failed? Because you are worried that your cousin is going to be uh, undesirable and unmanageable. You are because you're worried that this is your adopted son and but this is your blood and this makes that's what makes perfect sense. you are thinking of considerations other than the principles and the morality involved. And that's what's inappropriate. Then Allah, but when Allah says that we then had you marry her so that people will know 
that this whole thing about that you know just because the adopted son is not a real son, so you can marry the wives of your adopted sons. Um, does this mean we've had you marry her by telling you Muhammad marry her, or by basically the way Allah decides the fate of everything? So you know, I tend to think that it was not it was not a divine command but it's uh, it's as if allah is saying you know you should not have you should have you, you these people married because of your intervention and yes the marriage failing and especially that this is your adopted son and this is your cousin is embarrassing but you should not have opposed the 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 divorce because it was it's not right that Zaid would put up with this type of behavior and you've tried to get her to stop treating him as inferior and she never responded but then Allah solved this problem Allah had Allah's own reasons and Allah's own reasons is to make it a point you Muhammad married her because you wanted to mend her broken heart and basically save her from the, the the very awkward position she was left in after the divorce. But Allah wanted you to marry her for something completely different. And that's to make a point about adoption, etc., etc. Now, it is very significant, as we will see, that yet again, when we get to the story of Zaid, we get to something full of ambiguity. Here, the historical facts are far more ascertainable, but it takes work. And again, if you're ill-intentioned, you will read the historical facts in a skewed way. If you're well-intentioned, you will read the historical facts in a very different way. A theme is emerging here. Throughout Surat Al-Ahjab, you have historical facts that teeter on the borders of ambiguity. And these historical facts can be read in a Nurani way, in a way full of light, or they, they can be read in a Zalami way, in a way full of darkness. Okay, pause. Think about that. Think about that. Do you notice something? What do we do when we construct reality? We make an interpretive choice. And we can either defer to what Allah tells us to believe in or what we can defer to what we want to believe in and we say, boy, wait, Surat al-Ahzab so far 
is full of these, this same dynamic. It seems the entire surah is a demonstration of the interpretive choice and the way you are going to navigate, the way you establish facts in life and believe facts in life. Keep this in mind. Let's take a two-minute break and then come back to it. So, Um, as we said that so there are I mean I've emphasized that when when Zaid goes to Zainab after her divorce the the reports say that Khan Tabki Hasra she she was she was weeping um because of the state that she she was left in after her divorce um and it's when people would try to would, would Told Zainab, you, you're the woman who Zaid, uh, the prophet's adopted son, divorced. You know, basically putting her down. Her response would be, "I'm the woman that uh, God, that God ordained my marriage over seven heavens." So I mean, it's clear that this this was this was a point of of pride for her. And um, uh, something that boosted up her morale and her position socially. Although it's clear as well that the Quran reprimands her for uh, failing to live up to the ideals of the Quran in having such a hard time accepting uh, that she's married to someone who used to be a slave. Okay. So, then, Surat Al-Ahzab, let's see, so, Moves on from there. ما كان على النبي من حرج فيما فرض الله له سنة الله الذي خلو سنة الله الذي في الذين خلو من قبل وكان أمر الله قدرا مقدورا الذين يبلغون رسالات الله ويخشونه ولا يخشون أحدا إلا الله وكفى بالله حسيبا 
ما كان محمد أبا أحد من رجالكم ولكن رسول الله وخاتم النبيين وكان الله بكل شيء عليم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اذكروا الله ذكرا كثيرا وسبحوه بكرة وأصيلا هو الذي يصلي عليكم والملائكة ليخرجكم من الظلمات إلى النور وكان بالمؤمنين رحيما تحيتهم, تحيتهم يوم يلقونه سلام وأعد لهم أجرا كريما يا أيها النبي إن أرسلناك شاهدا ومبشرا ونذيرا وداعيا إلى الله بإذنه وسراجا منيرا أوكي. So now we are at 38. So then 38. Hence, no blame whatever attaches to the Prophet for having done what God has ordained for the Prophet. Indeed, such was God's way with those that have passed away aforetime. The Sunnat, Sunnat Allah. Okay? And remember that God's will is always destiny absolute, and such will always be God's way with those who convey God's messages to the world and stand in awe of God and hold none but God in awe, for none can take count of man's doing as God's does. And know, O believers, that Muhammad is not the father of any of your men but is God's apostle and the seal of all prophets, and God has indeed full knowledge of everything. All you who have attained to faith, remember God with unceasing remembrance and extol God's limitless glory from morn to evening. Okay. God it is who bestows his God's blessings upon you with God's angels echoing God so that God might take you out of the depths of darkness into light. And indeed, a dispenser of grace is God unto the believers. On the day when they meet God, they will be welcomed with the greeting, peace, and God will have ready for them a most excellent reward. And as for thee, O prophet, behold, we have sent you as a witness to the truth and as a herald of glad tidings, as, as a warner, and, one, and as one who summons all people to God by God's leave and as a light-giving beacon. Wasirajan Munir. So, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss a lot here. Let's, let's break it down a bit. Okay. So first, Allah tells us, that there's Allah ordains things for the Prophet. 
is special status for the Prophet. And understand that there is a special status for the Prophet. But then say that, and remember that in fact, this is Allah's sunnah, this is Allah's way as to those before you. Here, Allah is alerting us that prophets have always had a special dynamic with Allah that defined their historical role in specific ways. And indeed, because of what's going to come in Surah Al-Ahzab, Prophet Moses, for instance, is reported to have married X number of marriages, and it's it, it trying to figure out exactly how many women he married is, is a near historical impossibility. It is a historical. Or, or Prophet Solomon, or Dawood, or David. Prophets are human beings. In a sense, they are thoroughly contextual because in a sense, they, they, they function within their historical context and perform roles within their historical context. And like the, for instance, the story of Khidr in the Quran, who is receiving special revelation that even Moses cannot understand as recipients of the divine message, they have a special status. In other words, the facts of their life demonstrate an privity and an exclusivity to the role as prophets. In the same way that Allah told us that the wives of the prophets are like no other women, the prophet himself is playing a very specific historical function. And that this is the way of God with all the prophets. But at the same time, and that there is, however, the ultimate moral here is that to learn that you must stand by God's message, convey God's message, and fear none but God. This principle is something that we share with the prophets. 
while we are not recipients of revelations, we don't have special circumstance. God doesn't tell us, marry this person, don't marry this person. But we are under the same obligation that when we answer to someone, we answer only to God and none but God. But then Allah comes and says, and remember that Muhammad is not the father of any of your of your men. Well, obviously, here is a reference again to the fact that Zaid is not to be treated as the Prophet's son, but that it is intentional that the Prophet would not have a male heir. And in fact, we are told this right before we are told that the Prophet is Khatamun Nabiyin, that he is the seal. If he wasn't the seal, the line of male, the, having male children would continue because the line for prophecy would continue. But it has to come to an end because he's the seal. Then Allah tells us, now, so this prophet is the seal. This prophet doesn't have an heir. When this prophet dies, there will be no prophet that inherits the role of the prophet. Like we, we've seen with the whole line of Abrahamic prophets. Okay, so we understand that. So what do we do? And Allah's response is again quite remarkable. You wanna know what you do? You have no other recourse than the constant dhikr, night and day. Dhikr here doesn't mean that you sit and you say subhanallah, 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 but to be God conscious constantly. Okay. And in fact, This is the key to a dynamic, a critical dynamic that you engage in constant dhikr, be God conscious, because in return, what Allah does for you is something quite remarkable. The angels, and here the angels, is symbolic for the heavens. That indeed, Allah and the angels, both, the heavens, is constantly in a state of prayer over you. Constantly in a state of supplication over you. 
so that you may exit from darkness to light. There is a report transmitted here that Musa السلام, said to the Israelites something very different, something very similar. Be in constant remembrance of God so that God and the angels may pray over you. And the Israelites then reportedly mocked Moses and told them, your God and the angels pray? How could God and the angels pray? And that this bothered Moses enormously. And that Moses then told, then God told Moses, tell your people, قُلْ لَهُمْ إِنِّي أُصَلِّي وَإِنَّ صَلَاتِي رَحْمَتِي وَإِنَّ رَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ that my prayer is that my compassion would extend to all. Okay, so prophecy will end your path is the path of dhikr. The dhikr is the key to a reciprocal dynamic, and the reciprocal dynamic is that Allah and you would be in the mind of Allah and the angels, so much so that you are the recipients of God's mercy. In this magnanimously beautiful image that Allah and the angels are in are literally praying night and day to so that you may exit from darkness to light. And this is why, for instance, all the hadith that say where the Prophet is asked about Fadlu Dhikr. And he says, dhikr is of, is of gr- a greater reward than even jihad. And Ibn Abbas says that, that Allah made for every farida an ajal ma'loom, illa dhikrullah, that Allah has decreed religious duties each duty has defined contours except dhikr dhikr is a fluid duty it's a never-ending duty it is the key to mercy and the key to light but then look at what follows this okay so then then it tells us Something about the Prophet. The Prophet himself is sent as shahid, a witness, wa mubashir, a, a bring, someone who brings good tidings, wa nazir, a warner, wa da'yan ilallah bi 
and the bridge, the inviter to Allah, the bridge to Allah, wasirajan munira. Now, a beacon of light. So, and it will follow this by saying to the Prophet, you know, forget about the hypocrites. Right? This is 48. Forget about forget about the hypocrites. You have a much bigger role. Now, pause here and think of where Surah Al-Ahzab has taken us so far. It has informed us This is the seal of the prophets. This is it. It has informed us that the household of the prophet is a moral example in our midst. But at the same time, it has left us with the reality of the 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 the, the actual reality that although Alil Bayt in principle is a moral example, Alil Bayt includes those who are of ambiguous status. People we don't even know if they actually married the Prophet. Those that we know for sure they married the Prophet, but we don't know much about the role, like Sauda herself, or like Zainab herself, except for like very specific episodes. But then with that, we have Ali al-Bayt like Ali and Fatima and Hassan Hussein, who we know a great deal. But then it comes and it anchors the Prophet and says, the Prophet to you is a beacon of light. Now, this is a subtle point, but a very critical point. Let's say I want to understand the ways that the Prophet is a beacon of light. And I approach the issue from how many wives did the Prophet marry? The narratives about, and, I, and let's say I approach it like so many Muslims do, 
you know, read the story about, oh, he saw Zainab and he was so impressed by her beauty and he wanted to marry her and, you know, all that nonsense. Oh, did he marry this, did he have the slave girl, did he not have the slave girl, and, and all the, all the, the, the historical, the, the historical ambiguities, like the historical ambiguities that surround Solomon, David, Musa, we haven't even talked about the historical ambiguities that surround the character like Isa. Because the Bible itself is full of contradictions, which is our main source about who Isa was and what Isa did and so on. To what extent can the Prophet become Isaraj Munir for you, a beacon of light for you? I would submit to you, you can spend your entire life so thoroughly submerged, submerged in the historical narratives back and forth and the Prophet would not be any would not play any role as a beacon of light to you the only way that the Prophet would become a beacon of light is Siraj Munir It's like those who spend their entire life, it's like I remember this, this obnoxious kid once came to me, you know, typical, why did Imam Hassan marry all these? And he wanted to pull me into all the historical debates about how many women Imam Hassan had married, how many slaves did he have, how, all are historical historically contested facts it's impossible to ascertain historical facts with certitude why because Imam Hassan was a highly historically contested figure there were many political motivations to either make him look good or make him look bad and because of that, you will always have traditions back and forth, back and forth. To what extent can I access the Alil Bayt as Isaraj Munir from the historical narratives? My answer is you can't. You must be aware as you approach history that you have a choice as to what to believe and you can believe you can start with the presumption of what I need to know about this historical legacy is anchored in the ethical principles I learned from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the extent that the Prophet is a beacon of light to me is accessed through dhikr not through historical investigations 
everyone that felt the Islamic history is replete with poetry about the love of the Prophet. When did the love of the Prophet fall out of the hearts of Muslims? When Muslims, their relationship to the Prophet became negotiated through the discourses of Orientalism and counter-Orientalism. When it became a matter of this tradition, this report, rather than a personal relationship with the Prophet and Ali al-Bayt, the only way that you can have a love of the Prophet and Ali al-Bayt is to start with the, with, with the premise that they are a beacon of light. And that takes priority over all. And your personal relationship with that beacon of light is firmly anchored before you even get... You can engage in historical debates as a scholarly, intellectual curiosity. But they are not the basis upon which you define your relationship, it's in the same way, put it this way, someone who starts out by saying, I cannot see God as my guide from light to darkness unless first I address all my logical, all my logical objections about God you will never reach God as a light because eternity is not subject to any logical understanding. First beginnings is not subject to any logical understanding. The vastness of deity or the vastness of reality is not subject to any logical understanding. In the same way that I even can say that quantum physics itself is not logical, subject to any real logical understanding. There you always will reach the incomprehensibles. If you insist on addressing the incomprehensibles before building a relationship with God, you will never get there even more so with the tradition of the Prophet When Allah says, this Prophet is Isiraj Munir, is a beacon of light. I'll put it to you the way one of my teachers once put it to me. You are never if you tell yourself, I'm going to fall in love with the Prophet by reading all the books on Sirah that exist in the universe, you will not fall in love with the Prophet. You fall in love with the Prophet by smelling the Prophet's perfume. By Allah giving you a sense of what that Prophet 
is the presence of the Prophet. That's why Allah anchors it with dhikr first. Allah takes us through all these events that could fill tons of pages of scholarship back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Does Allah not know that there are all these historical ambiguities in Surah Al-Ahzab? Of course, Allah knows. Allah knows that we will be back and forth forever. But that's not the access to the Prophet. The access to the Prophet is like to have, to, to attain a relationship with the Prophet becomes a beacon of light. Is to start from the premise that if you're committed to Allah, the commitment to Allah, then Allah will not have Allah's representative on earth be but pure light. Now, so regardless of the historical evidence that I read, when my heart tells me that something I find in the tradition is not pure light, regardless, I will not accept it. My relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with the Prophet tells me I cannot accept it. Eventually, I might, in fact, and in, in, it happened numerous times in my life, my scholarship eventually vindicates my skepticism. But even if it doesn't, I am more than happily at peace with the idea of going to my grave not knowing whether he married only nine or more than nine or less than nine, it has no bearing on the role of the Prophet as a Siraj Munir, as a beacon of light. So the approach itself, those who start by saying, first, before I develop a relationship with the Prophet, I must first satisfy all these questions that I have, you will end up exactly what Grace was mentioning, one in the four. Or those who say, oh, we, we can't use the Hadith, we only can use the Quran. Your problem is not the lack of knowledge. Your problem is the lack of dhikr. The lack of a personalized relationship. If the Prophet, would have visited you once, all doubts would have melted away in an instant for the rest of your life. It is not a coincidence that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes after this journey and comes and says, understand, this is about a man who is beyond historical eventualities. If you, your only relationship to this prophet is through 
the assessment of historical facts and contingencies, you're going to miss the point. In the same way you can't access, access Allah this way, you can't access the Prophet this way. Remarkably, although Allah comes and, and with this introduction, the dhikr, Allah and the angels praying on us, and the Prophet being Siraj Munir, it is amazing how often this, this, this culmination in Surah Al-Ahzab that this prophet is a Siraj Munir, is a beacon of light. This is why I told you Surah Al-Ahzab is like the close relative of Surah Al-Nur. But Surah Al-Ahzab comes and says, the light, the, the embodiment of God's final prophecy is light. And so the light can only be attained through light. And because what happens, when what happens when you have that personal relationship is your very approach to history. Let me put it this way. There is a historian that there, Muslims have uh, uh, okay, strike that. Muslims have written a lot of books in the modern age. Although a lot of these books are written to defend the Prophet والسلام, they are not nearly as effective as the books that were written in a period in which in in the pre-modern period where the authors were not concerned with defending the Prophet Why is it that with all the apologetics of modern writers these historians, quote-unquote, are not nearly as effective as even the people who were, who were more like chroniclers, people, writers of chronicles, not really historians, but not even as effective as the, the difference is that a historian that approaches history with already a broken attitude, not sure of the ultimate worthiness of their subject matter, loses the battle from the beginning. Because often what they're capable of seeing and noticing and the limits of their research is defined by their ideological stance. While if you have the moral confidence 
you have a level of bravery, daringness, assuredness, certitude that comes out in your methodology, in your style, in your tone, in everything. This is why so much of the modern scholarship written by Muslims is so ineffective. In the same way that Muslims have lost touch with the basic understanding of why is it that Islam takes people from darkness to light, they also don't understand the way that the Prophet is a beacon of light. Or they're not sure that the Prophet was indeed a beacon of light. So they try to, you know, bolster this fact, fix this fact, argue this fact, but the defeat is within, deeply anchored, and so we never go anywhere. Okay. So we come to this pivotal point that this is the final prophet and this prophet is a beacon of light and that you must relate to this prophet as a beacon of light it is not about the prophet as an individual as a person but it is about this prophet as a witness, a warner, i.e. what this prophet represents for you. This is precisely, Allah comes and says, don't worry about, although for us it's not a petty thing, the, the harm or the the shenanigans with the hypocrites. These people have, with, have withdrawn in the heart of battle, but it's like Allah coming and saying, this is beneath you. Don't worry about that. Your role is something very different. And, th and so, Don't even worry about pursuing, you know, everyone that came and said, can I withdraw and go take care of my home? You, you gave them permission until the, the majority was gone. Don't even worry about going after them or blaming them or ostracizing them or whatnot. Your role is something different. Like the role of Alil Bayt, your household. Okay. Then, after, like Surah Al-Nur, after delivering this point, 
it goes back to addressing a law. But look, it's specific law, but at the same time, immoral law. If you marry someone, and this is 49, if you marry someone, but you end up divorcing this person before you consummate. So in other words, there was no consummation but a divorce. There's no waiting period. This was a question that was actually asked specifically, whether there's a waiting period if there's no consummation. But, look, Already in Surah Al-Baqarah, we were told that they are owed if there is a marriage, divorce, but no consummation, that they're owed half the dowry. And a lot of commentators thought, well, then Surah Al-Baqarah, which was revealed earlier, abrogates Surah Al-Ahzab, or this verse in Surah Al-Azab, which was revealed later, which makes no sense. It has nothing to do with abrogation. That in Surah Al-Baqarah, you were told, give them half their dowry. But here it says, just because people, when they divorce without consummation, there's always a, a reason that's not pleasant. People don't divorce without consummation because they love each other. They divorce without consummation because after the marriage, but before consummation, a problem occurred. And Allah comes and says, even then, it is not just giving them half their dowry but it is making sure that they're comfortable and that they're treated beautifully. Even then, there, that's no excuse for harshness, for hard feelings, for saying, well, you know, since we didn't consummate, you know, I want my presence back, for instance, or I want the wedding gifts back, or I, your attitude is precisely like the attitude you would have if you have a prophet who's a beacon of light. Surah Al-Nur said, spread the light. Surah Al-Ahzab comes and says, this is a beacon of light. Be careful that when you understand the example of your prophet, that the normative commitments you make, the interpretive acts you take, must always be on the side of light. I'm going to jump ahead 
to just alleviate a little bit of the of the of the anxiety you see think of how surah al-ahzab ends surah al-ahzab comes and says allah gave the trust what is the trust the intellect it started out with how you construct reality it ended with the legacy and the trust of the intellect do you see a connection between the two and in the middle the prophet as a beacon of light so you are going to use the intellect you are going to be constructing your reality making it, 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 following the sunnah of the prophet didactically blindly saying this hadith says let me recite to you brother this hadith follow this hadith no you are going to be making normative moral commitments all the time you are going to be deciding what to believe and what to follow you are going to be interpreting all the time and you better do it in the course of the light you have a choice you could read you could go to banu nadir and say yes i follow the hadith execute 600 700 men no problem i have no problem with that but have you thought about the prophet as siraj munir you could say Oh yes, I see no problem. Prophet saw a woman, he thought she was beautiful, he desired her, told her husband, don't divorce her, but then he really wanted her. But then have you you're making an interpretive choice. Have you thought of the Prophet as a beacon of light? There's no God can't give you the answers. God can give you a methodology. It started out with how do you construct reality? Ends with your intellect in the middle is the beacon of light what time is it 9:20 now look at this example so this is now we're going to go to verse 50 this is going to have to do 50 and 51. Well, okay, let's see how far we'll go. Okay. okay let's, so, Allah speaking to the Prophet in 50, Behold, we have made lawful so we we've jumped ahead earlier and dealt with this somewhat that prophet 
behold, we've made lawful to you your wives that you paid dowers to, and those who your right hands, right hands possess, who come to possess as captives of war, basically, so you can marry a captive of war, and we've made lawful to you your, the daughters of your paternal uncles, and we've talked about this, the Banu Hashem, and the daughters of your maternal uncle, uncle the Banu Zahra, from uh, your father's side. And But as long as they migrated with you, and we've talked about that here, while, for instance, a Muslim can marry a Christian or Jew or can marry someone who is not related. The, the prophet is limited as to who may be part of, may be part, potentially a part of his added bait. And clearly that the range of women that the prophet can pick from is limited is setting constraints that we can speculate as to why he would be so constrained but we can't really figure out the reason okay and then and a a woman who comes, وَابَتْ نَفْسَهَا لِلنَّبِيدَ A woman who comes and says, I, you, I, follows the procedure of hiba means that marry me without a dowry. And as we said, that this was made allowable to the Prophet but to but was abrogated that marriage without a dowry was not allowed to anyone else. Okay. So, we have already made known what we have enjoined upon them with regard to their wives and whose, whom, um, okay, the bright sides possess. Um, okay. So, this is verse 50. And we notice... Um, immediately not just the ambiguity about the marriages of the prophet but this whole procedure of a woman who gives herself to the prophet to marry her without a, without a dowry um this itself, you nearly get nowhere about. So, um, so Ibn Abbas, for instance, and Mujahid says the Prophet never married a woman through the process of hibah. So, in other words, the Prophet never married um, any woman without a dowry. Um, 
other sources, if you look in even like in any any of the of the longer tafsir, they will tell you, well, you know, it's debated whether he married this woman as a hiba. Um, whether so, and when you look into the various traditions, you enter a maze without resolution. You spend an enormous amount of time and you find that those who he said he never married any woman without a dowry are on solid grounds and those who say that he married X woman without a dowry have ample support as well. None of it is mutawatir, all of it's ahad, but but nevertheless, it's it's traditions that a a a, a, a literally a jungle of traditions um, that tell you both at the same time. And So, and remember, this is the verse we jumped ahead to, to sort of, we dealt with earlier by jumping ahead, and then now we come back to it again. And what is also involved in, in this verse is, when it when Allah says that you know your maternal side your paternal side your maternal side etc is this narrowing the pool and for what purpose so this will become clear even a bit more but if you look at 51, so, Turji man tasha' minhun, wa tu'wi ilayka man tasha' So, so you mayest, as Muhammad as put it, know that you mayest put off for a time whichever of them you please, and mayest take unto you whichever you please. Wa man imtagayta mimman azalta falajunah alayk. That, and, if you seek out any from whom you have kept away for a time, there is no, you will incur no sin. Okay. So um, this will make it more likely that their eyes are gladdened whenever they see you and that they do not grieve whenever they are overlooked. And that all of them may find contentment in whatever you have to give them. Uh, for God alone knows what is in their hearts, and God is indeed all-knowing and forbearing. Okay. Wallahu ya'lam ma fi qulubikun, wa kan Allahu aliman halima. Then, la yahillu laka nisa min ba'du wala antabaddala bihinna min azwaj walaw a'jabaka husnahun illa ma malakat yaminuk wa kana allahu ala kulli shay'in qadira so 
no women shall henceforth be lawful to you, nor art you allowed to supplant. And we've talked about the badal, where you exchange your wife or you you switch wives to any of them by other wives, even though their beauty should please you greatly. None shall be lawful to you beyond those whom you already has come to possess, meaning that already you married to, and God keeps watch over everything. Okay. We've already said that there is this debate as to whether 52 is saying the women that you are currently married to and normally the presumption is that he's married to nine at this point is that you may not marry more than nine or is it as we've said is it saying that you may not marry beyond the limit set in the earlier verse meaning you may not marry beyond women who are related to you on your maternal side or paternal side and who migrated with you so and and the, the, and as i said that for apologetic reasons muslims sort of swept that whole debate under the rug and said well no no it's just limiting the prophet to to these nine women, and that's it. And as I said, that there are even all these debates about whether the Prophet married someone in the seventh year Hijra, married a woman even in the ninth Hijra, whether the, when the Prophet died, he was planning to marry a woman that... Um, it, it, and I've told you that there are... The, the, the issue with the marriages of the Prophet is that upon the death of the prophet, all types of tribes wanted to claim a relation to the prophet. Quraysh was saying the prophet is from us. But Quraysh wanted to say, well, the prophet being from us, it is us, Quraysh, who is entitled to govern or to rule. Benu Hashim were saying, this is unfair. If the prophet is from Quraysh, well, you guys fought him for most of his life. You were actually not even nice to him. If anything, it is, should be from Benu Hashim. But in the same way that you had Quraysh making this claim and Banu Hashim making this claim, you had tribes from Ghatafan to Al-Asd to Banu Zuhra to tribes from all over that wanted to claim, well, we had a woman married to the Prophet or we had a woman that the Prophet was planning to marry. That political incentive created and incentivized historical narratives that are very difficult to decipher through. 
there are some women that were just too well established, like Aisha or Sauda. But beyond that, the personal lives of prophets, the personal lives of prophets become severely contested right upon their death. Everyone, it is as if everyone wants to pierce the veil of the Prophet's privacy to say we had an intimate connection. Even those who claimed to be prophets after the Prophet, so even those who became uh, false prophets, still wanted to claim that they had a lineage, a marital lineage to the Prophet, so that they can say, before his death, the Prophet said, "My, I share my prophecy with Musaylama, or I share my prophecy with this person. So the, the, the realm of marriage and intimacy became hotly contested. The only line and this is my opinion, the only line that despite the numerous attempts to corrupt remained pristine and pure is the line of Banu Abdul Muttalib, the lineage to Imam Ali and Fatima and Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein. And that is why they occupy a special place. The, the Amawids would always say, what is this? Why are you supporting the faction of Ali? Aren't we Alil Bayt as well? Because of this marriage, because Bint Uthman, for instance, was married to the Prophet, right? Or bint Abu Bakr was married to, to the Prophet, or Hafsa uh, uh, bint Omar married to the Prophet. So say, well, aren't we Alil Bayt as well? But the response to this is yes, but the historical record is so muddied. The Subhanallah. The only clear, the only part of that historical record where you can find a pristine moral leadership to the community is through the line of Imam Ali and Fatima and Hassan and Hussein. So they became a direct link to the role of a prophet as a Siraj and al-Munir, a beacon of light. Now, look, when in you look at 51, I, I, I'm not skipping it, but let's go back to 51. That you may put off for a time whichever who you please or 
Now, this verse is telling the Prophet after the ultimatum was given and the wives that chose to stay with the Prophet stayed with the Prophet. It's telling the Prophet that Indeed, when you deal within your household, you have discretion. Discretion, to put it simply, who you are intimate with, how often you are intimate with them. You have, it's like saying this is a personal matter between you and your wives. Muslims were, most Muslims have heard the hadith that directly contradict this verse in which the Prophet supposedly declares that he he's like a, a robot. He spends equal time with every wife on every occasion. When Allah speaks in this terms of this, this discretion, it's like saying it's between the Prophet and his wife's butt out. You're not privy to their relationship and you're not allowed to be privy to their relationship. Don't even talk about it. Did Muslims listen? No, they didn't. They still invented traditions to make the prophet either like a stud that sleeps with all his wives in one night, which is absurd, or like a monotone machine. These were affairs. A beacon of light cannot be, if he was living in our midst, we wouldn't be allowed to talk about how much time he spends with which wife or what happens in his household, then how can you imagine that we would be allowed to talk about it 1,400 years after the fact? Think about it, people. If the Prophet was living in our midst, what happens between him and his wives is private. Any speculation would be exactly that. Speculation and namima and ghaiba and you wouldn't be allowed to talk about it. But yet, Muslims, 1,400 years after the fact, they think they're allowed to talk about it and speculate about it and have a crisis of faith because of it? These are not things within access. They're not related to the beacon of light. These are things between him and his wives. But look at the example of what we're saying, interpretations of light and interpretations of darkness. Supposedly, after the revelation of verse, these verses, 50 to 53, supposedly, Aisha says, did Muhammad Asad write this? 
ما أرى ربك إلا يسارع في هواك Supposedly Aisha responds by saying Oh I see your God is keen to accommodate your whims Now if she would have said that that is a perfect example of an interpretation of darkness. I personally don't think that she said that. Allahu alam. But whoever put that in the mouth of Aisha also is an example of an interpretation of darkness. You're taking something that is very private and you're spinning it the way human beings who don't see a prophet as a beacon of light would spin it. You can say, you, you can speculate like that about, you can't, you're not about, you're not supposed to speculate like that about a teacher, about a moral example. So how about the prophet? But this is precisely when you reflect on an Ahzab and that Allah chose to tell us that the Prophet is a beacon of light and the last of the messengers in Surah Al-Ahzab of all the Surah and you reflect upon and then to begin it with the construction of reality and to end it with the intellect and you ask why Allah and I think the answer is very clear. Because you are interpretive agents and you are also moral agents. And if you are in if you you are determined to look at the prophet as a neutral beacon, nothing will, will change your mind. Your interpretive moves will reflect that choice. If you have a relationship with the Prophet and you know the Prophet to be a beacon of light, it will affect all your interpretive moves, all your choices as to how you construct reality and what reality you live in. And with this, let's stop here. Inshallah, we'll continue on Saturday. Inshallah, we'll finish Surah Al Ahzab on Saturday. You hardly have an audience tonight, but come do the honors. For our honored single guest, Rizwan. <laughs> and Rizwan. There's 11 on YouTube. And 11 on YouTube. Oh, okay. Oh, 11? Yeah. That's, that's fine. Well, for all 12 of our blessed guests, <laughs> Alhamdulillah, um, you know, the people who didn't sit through this don't know what they just missed out on because I think this is the key to so much um, and you know subhanAllah it's like you you always say we never plan out what like each other person or I never tell you what I'm going to talk about in my introduction but and I always I mean I'm blessed that something tends to happen that will come up um, and today's point about um, the people who leave Islam because of doubt 
I think this so much answers that question. Um, it's the missing link, right? Because we know so many Muslims that are dealing with doubt because they can't resolve this historical issue, this fact, this piece of evidence that's thrown at them. And what's clearly missing is this whole notion of this beacon of light. And everything comes back to something very simple is the idea, like as we've been learning first, you know, so many surahs and especially surah nur, you know, either you're on the side of light or you're on the side of darkness. Either you are an instrument of light or you're not. Either you are on, you know, in the party of Allah or on the, on the party of darkness. Um, and, you know, you oftentimes also in your scholarship have said that a text and how you approach the text is only as good as the morality of the reader. And that is again emphasized here is like you can choose to highlight all of the ugly things in our tradition or you can choose all of the beautiful things in the tradition and now I know now I understand where this came from through this journey um, and then as um, something that I think is so beautiful too is you know we often talk about like people who get caught in these academic or scholarly debates um, you know, and this idea that you don't need to be a scholar to understand light. You know, the scholar, to be a scholar, you can engage all of these, you know, very difficult, nuanced, um, historical ambiguities and all of that. Um, but this is what makes, I think, this, this tradition and this faith humanistic and beautiful and universal is that God is speaking to us in a way that we understand either you know you are emanating light or you're not either you're choosing light or you're not and at the same time empowering you with the idea you have a choice you can affect how people see Islam how people see God how people see what beauty this faith calls for through your actions and through your choices through your interpretive act as an agent of God um, and especially now when um, people have such an issue with how the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is being you know, presented or um, you know, um, attacked and personified. This is the key, is if you think of him, God tells you in the Quran that he's a beacon of light. That's, that should be it. That should be the start and end of everything. That's the key to, you know, all of that doubt. So, alhamdulillah, thank you so much for taking us through this incredible journey, um, this incredible understanding, and we're not even done yet, right? We're not even finished with Surah Azab, so I know that there's still so much more to come, but just in this one Surah, we've covered so much ground um, and understanding that this there was a purpose to demonstrate all of this ambiguity um, because you can, uh, you know, emerge from that and say, no, I choose the certainty of light. And that's such a powerful point of empowerment for each of us as individuals. So thank you so much. Um, I, I can't wait for, inshallah, the conclusion on Saturday of Surah Azab, inshallah. Um, get your questions ready. Hopefully we will be able to cover those in the Q&A as well. So thank you everyone for being with us. Alhamdulillah. Um, this is such a gift and so happy that you are here to receive it with us. So, okay, everyone have a wonderful rest of the week and inshallah we will see you very soon.
Wonderful to see you. Assalamu alaikum. Well, <laughs> is it still a lot less? Not a lot, but but a very critical, very critical point that closes uh, the, the the circle. Wow. Um, the, the, now you know why. Now you understand why I was so uh, burdened and pensive, and uh, when I found out that it's Surah Al-Ahzab, just it, it's like how how. It's like you have to walk people step by step, step by step, so to get them to. I mean, once you see it, it you can never forget it. You, 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 you will. It, it will. The, and the more you think about it, the more you say it's obvious. It's like it's so obvious, but it's again, it's just. But just, this is one of these surahs, though. It's not like it's like you said. It's not that you can just point out the moral points. Look at how much work you had to do to understand the history, the context, the people, what was going on, all of the, even historical ambiguity. You can't know if there's ambiguity if you don't know the entire, like, tradition of what people have said, what they've not said, how they conflict with one another. I mean, it's, it's like it takes work to, to, you know. Yeah, I mean, and part of the reason it takes, took, took so much work is because you have to sit, you have to work through all the stuff that's out there and then step back and think about like the one of the things that just like always struck me is that n none of them make a big point about that at the center of the surah is allah telling us that the prophet is a beacon of light they they take it as if it's rhetorical flair mm -hmm. it's like sounds good but it's not a matter of sounding good. And and why in Surah Al-Ahzab would Allah choose Surah Al-Ahzab to say this is the final prophet? Could have said it in Baqarah. Could have said it in Al-Umran. You know, it would have, could have, could have said it in one of the short swords that, you know, but no, it's in Surah Al-Ahzab. And you know, so these things they 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 become and so at the same time that it's like oh yeah, you know, God it's like in the midst of the sky, yeah, I, I know that there are all those issues that going on, family issues and so on. Well let me tell you about the family issues. But out. You know, it, it's like get out of the gutter. You know? clean your, your your brain and and just focus on what's this is yeah